This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Theatre Nerds, I'm Mike, and Mel is here too, and you are backstage once again. If you missed us last week, <laughs> that's tough. Well, actually, you can catch up on any of your favourite podcast streaming apps, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and AccessMedia.nz. Musical of the week, in case you haven't already guessed it, is Hairspray, with that opening track from the original Broadway cast recording, and Mike will be giving us all the goss very shortly, and there's a lot of it. also <laughs> want to get stuck into today talking about writing a musical. Such a neat subject. It's something that loads and loads of people have done. I would never dream of trying myself and I take my hat off and have utmost admiration for people that can do it and even try to do it. It's quite difficult from what I understand and it can take years and years to get it right. So we're going to see what the online guides have to say about writing a musical and what also the experts have to say about having 
done it before. You know what I've noticed, Mel, is that mm. some of these stories from people who say, yeah, it took me ages to get my first one done, they sort of seem to hit the ground running after that, and they, they become quite prolific, don't they? Yeah, well, we'll talk about it a bit today, but, you know, Lin-Manuel, it took him six years to write In the Heights, and then another eight years to write Hamilton. So it's definitely not a short process, but I think once they've got a formula, they tend to just get on with know, it. keep running. Yeah. 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 It's something I think about a lot in general, uh, being a writer myself. Um, but over the last few days, Lynn Miranda has come up in conversation quite a bit because I'm a fan. And so we talk about him. Um, and, you know, he wrote in the Heights and he, and he won Tony's for that. And like I just said, he spent another eight years writing Hamilton. And since then, he's been all over Moana and Cantor, Vivo, Mary Poppins. So, I, yeah, I guess my inspiration for this discussion was really wondering how the heck he does it. Yeah, good call, though. I like it. Yeah. If you're lucky, we might squeeze in a recorded interview, actually, with the man himself. But first, let me tell you a little bit about a play that's being staged in Cambridge very soon after quite a tortured run with um, COVID postponements and disappointments. It's the play Conjugal Rights by New Zealand's favourite playwright, Sir Roger Hall, and it's a supposedly insightful look at marriage, focusing on one middle-aged couple, Barry and Jen. Barry, a dentist, and Jen are in bed when the play begins. They're about to celebrate their 21st wedding anniversary, and the scene, their bedroom, remains the same throughout the play, as we see the couple talking about their marriage, their grown-up children, their work, their indiscretions, all of that. It features local actors Steve McMurray and Sari Young and promises to be a giggle-worthy night at the theatre. I cannot recommend it enough. I'm not a big fan of all Roger Hall stuff, but this is actually a really good play and I'm so pleased to see them finally getting it onto the boards. Yeah, same. I'll be really looking forward to keep seeing them get it on stage after, you know, I was meant to go on stage in September of last year. So it'll be, it'll be a, such a relief for them to have not put in all that hard work for nothing, you know. Yeah. Uh, the Gaslight only seats about 50, so it's, it's perfect for distancing. So add that to your list and let's get out our calendars for everything we know of coming up around the place soonish. Riverly Theatre, Geezers by Tommy Lee Johnston, directed by me. That's opening March 26. Oh my gosh, that's just around the corner. Hamilton Musical Theatre have their AGM on Monday, April the 4th, and that is starting at 7 o'clock. There is lots of online information about that through the HMT Facebook page. And HMT are also in rehearsals now for Blood Brothers on stage mid-May. At Clarence Street Theatre, we haven't heard anything to the contrary. As far as we know, Shrek the Musical is still going ahead, directed by Nick Wilkinson from the 26th to the, 20, oh, the 30th of April. Friends, the musical parody, is still on stage for one night only and on May 6th. And Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, directed by David Sidwell, that's coming out in July. At Navarra Lounge, our good friend Ivan there has open mic night tonight and every Wednesday come to that. Doors open from 6 o'clock and you have to book to perform, but it's great viewing if you want to go along just for a cool night out. And this Friday, March the 4th, the Vines album release tour is happening. At the Gaslight Theatre in Cambridge, we've just mentioned Conjugal Rights is coming up by Roger Hall. That's April the 30th until May the 14th. Matamata Dramatic Society, Any Port in a Pandemic by Richard Previtt, and that's on April 23rd to the 30th. The Pachadadu Theatre Players have Moonshine the Musical coming up. That goes on stage in April. Thames Music and Drama have Mamma Mia, directed by Diane Connors, hitting the stage in May. Rotorua Musical Theatre have Song Contest, the Almost Eurovision Experience. That's directed by John Drummond and coming up March 25th until April 9th. In Tauranga, Detour Theatre have The Hard Case Hotel by Devon Williamson opening March 24th. Tauranga Musical Theatre has That Bloody Woman directed by Daryl Nitschke and that opens April 27th. Theatre Whakatane have School of Rock the Musical directed by Sue Harris coming up that hits the stage on April the 27th. And in the Big Smoke, Auckland Theatre Company have made the difficult decision to cancel remaining performances of Grand Horizons. They've cancelled Lysander's Auntie as well, and Witty's Wahine has been postponed to 2023, all due to the gathering limitations and the increasing spread of Omicron in Auckland just making it non-viable. By way of upcoming opportunities and auditions, Bold Theatre have found their Kate Shepherd and are now looking to fill all the other roles. Auditions are being held Sunday, March 13th, and all the information you need is on the Bold Theatre website. Exciting stuff. We will be announcing all the productions we know of as we hear them, and as always, if there is a show or an audition opportunity you want us to spread the word about, all you have to do is send us an email, backstagepodcastnz at gmail.com, or just let us know when you see us around the place next. 
there's a light in the darkness though the night is black as my skin there's a light burning bright showing me the way but I know where I've been there's a cry in the distance it's a voice that comes from deep within there's a cry asking why I pray the answers up ahead cause I know where I've been There's a road we've been traveling Lost so many on the way But the riches will be plenty Worth the price, the price we had to pay We have yet to win And there's pride in my heart Cause I know where I'm going Yes I do Hairspray. I am actually a big fan of Hairspray. I, I love the music. I love the values. I love the era and the costumes. And so on that note, I'm feeling a little impatient. So Mike, just <laughs> give us the goods. Okay. Hairspray is an American musical with music and lyrics by Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman and a book by Mark O'Donnell and Thomas Meehan based on John Waters' 1988 film of the same name. The John Waters film starred Ricky Lake, Divine, Debbie Harry, Sonny Bono, Jerry Stiller, Leslie Ann Powers, Colleen Fitzpatrick, Michael St. Gerard, and Ruth Brown. A pretty star studded lineup for the movie. Hairspray was a dramatic departure, actually, for Waters uh, from his earlier works with a much broader intended audience. And in fact, as a PG, it is the mildest rating a John Waters film has ever received because most of his previous stuff has been rated X. He's a, a very prolific writer, director, producer, also widely known for his acting roles and as a visual artist across a lot of different media, such as installations, photography, sculpture. He's never afraid to challenge his audience nor authority. 
Waters stated that he takes an equal amount of joy and influence from highbrow art films as he does from sleazy exploitation films. He likes to push the boundaries and push your buttons. He wrote the screenplay for Hairspray under the title of White Lipstick, with the story loosely based on real events, actually. Really? Yep. That original film version of Hairspray was only a moderate success upon its initial theatrical release, earning a modest gross of just $8 million. But it met in the early 1990s and became a cult classic. The film received critical acclaim and is just in Empire Magazine's 2008 list of the 500 greatest movies of all time at number 444. Notably, it was Divine's final film released during his lifetime because he died just three weeks after its uh, debut. The plot of all the iterations of Hairspray follows teenage Tracy Turnblad's dream to dance on the Corny Collins Show, which is a local dance program on TV, loosely based on real-life TV show called The Buddy Dean Show, which was actually the one that preempted Dick Clark's American Bandstand, which was the big show in America through the 60s. In the Baltimore area during the 1950s and early 60s, though, it was The Buddy Dean Show that was all the bee's knees, so Corny Collins is a take on that. When Tracy wins a role on the show, she becomes a celebrity overnight, leading to social change as Tracy then campaigns for the show's integration. Remember, this is the 60s, times of segregation and a whole lot of open racism in the United yeah. States. I'll give you the synopsis because it's, it's fun. Act one, it is June 1962 in Baltimore, Maryland. Tracy Turnblad, an overweight high school student, wakes up and goes to school where she receives a warning for, I love this, inappropriate hair height. After school... She rushes home with her best friend Penny to catch the local teenage dance show, The Corny Collins Show. Edna, Tracy's shy and overweight mother, is ironing and complains about the noise of the music coming from the TV, while Penny's mother, Prudy, complains about it being race music. After an announcement that auditions for a temporary place on the show will be held due to the fact that Brenda is taking a leave of absence from the show for nine months, <laughs> Tracy begs her mother for permission to audition. Edna, fearing that Tracy will be laughed at due to her weight, actually refuses. But after talking to her dad, Wilbur, gaining permission and support from him, Tracy auditions for the show and bumps into a teenage heartthrob, Link Larkin, which leads to a dream sequence, which is wonderful. Velma Von Tussel, the villain of the piece, is the racist producer of the TV show, and she rejects Tracy from the audition because of her size, as well as refusing another dancer, a black girl named Little Inez. Back at school, Tracy is sent to detention for her monumental hair, Don't, where she meets black dancer Seaweed J. Stubbs, the son of the hostess of Negro Day on the Corny Collins show, and her name is Motormouth Maybell. I love these names. They're just great. And Seaweed Stubbs teaches her several dance moves. She uses the new dance steps at the sophomore hop the following day to introduce herself to Corny Collins, who's visiting as a celeb. And when Corny sees how well Tracy can dance, he makes an executive decision and gives her a place on the show. After the show's broadcast, the show's sponsor appeals to Velma, remember the villain, over Tracy's appointment, and Velma, threatening to fire Corny from the show, is eventually left distraught and determines from that moment she is going to ruin Tracy. At the Turnblad house, Edna is receiving calls from fans who saw Tracy on the show. A call comes in from Mr Pinky, the owner of a plus-size dress shop, for an endorsement. Tracy pleads with her mother to come with her and to act as her agent, although... Edna has not left the apartment in years. With a lot of coaxing, she finally makes it outside and Edna is given a huge makeover and Tracy becomes the spokesgirl for the shop. At school, signs of Tracy's fame are evident in the schoolyard with graffiti on the walls and Shelley, another Corny Collins council member, that's what they call the girls who dance on the show, the Corny Collins council, sporting Tracy's signature hairdo just so she could look like her as well. During a game of dodgeball, a jealous Amber knocks Tracy out and Link rushes to her side. Remember Link, the heartthrob? Penny and Seaweed, who have developed a liking for each other, rush to fetch the school nurse only to find her out sick. So Seaweed, suggesting that some fun would make Tracy feel better, invites all of them to his mother's record shop for a platter party. At the shop, Tracy rallies everyone to march against the station on the following day's Mother-Daughter Day because blacks are not allowed on the show except for the monthly Negro Day. Before the start, Motormouth Maybell convinces the initially reluctant Edna and Wilbur to march as well. Link declines to participate for the sake of his contract with the show, and during the protest led by Motormouth, Velma calls the police and fights break out. When the police arrive on the scene, almost everyone is arrested, and it's time for interval. Glass of wine, ice cream, 
back into the theatre, Act 2. After the march, most of the women are locked up in a women's penitentiary, but because of Velma's dirty tactics, the governor pardons and releases her and Amber. Wilbur bails out all the remaining people, excluding Tracy, who is forced for other reasons to remain in jail through another one of Velma's manipulations. During the night, Link sneaks into the jail where he finds Tracy in solitary confinement. As Link and Tracy reunite, Penny's mother Prudy punishes Penny for going to jail without her permission and ties her up in the bedroom where Seaweed comes to her rescue. Both couples declare their love for one another. After escaping from their respective prisons, the couples seek refuge at Motormouth Maybell's record shop. Tracy thinks that it's unfair that after all of their hard work, the Corny Collins show is still segregated. So they devise a plan to help integrate the show. On the day of the Miss Teenage Hairspray competition, Corny Collins starts the show with a song and Amber shows off her talents in a bid to get more votes from the viewers. But just as the results are about to be announced, Tracy stuns Amber as she makes her entrance in a magenta dress without any petticoat underneath taking over the stage and is joined by Link, Penny, Seaweed, Edna, Wilbur, Little Inez, Corny and Motormouth. Tracy is declared the winner of the competition. Amber and Velma protest the results, claiming that it's all wrong. Little Inez then tries to take the crown by force when Amber refuses to hand it over, but Tracy stops her, claiming that her heart is set on something more important, which is Link and her future. She then proclaims the Corny Collins show is now and forevermore racially integrated, to much applause, and when all is announced, the sponsor, Mr Spritzer, runs on stage again thrilled with the public's response to the telecast and announces that the governor has pardoned Tracy and gave her a full college scholarship and he offers Link a recording contract and Velma the position of vice president of Ultraglow, which is beauty products for women of colour, much to uh, Velma's chagrin. <laughs> Prudy arrives at the station and, seeing how happy Penny is with seaweed, accepts her daughter for who she is. At the height of the moment, the company invites Amber and Velma to join the celebration, and with the station and joyous celebration, Tracy and Link cement their love with a kiss. And I think that is Curtain, end of Act 2. So the show ends there. Nice, happy all around us. What a convoluted story, though, and what a great imagination to come up with all those (laughs) different tweaks to the storyline, you know, the scenarios. I, I love, yeah, I love the names. Prudy. Yeah. And Link. Prudy and Mr. Spritzer. <laughs> Seaweed stubs. Now, uh, Hairspray has also had lots of international tours in the US. There's been a West End production, lots and lots of foreign productions, and was adapted as a 2007 musical film, which a lot of people will know because it was directed and choreographed by Adam Shankman and has an ensemble cast including John Travolta as Edna, Michelle Pfeiffer, Christopher Walken, Amanda Bynes, James Marsden, Queen Latifah, Brittany Snow, Zac Efron, Elijah Kelly, Alison Janney, and Nikki Blonsky in her feature film debut. The stage show opened in Seattle uh, in 2002 and moved to Broadway later that year. The original Broadway cast included Marissa Jarrett Winokur as Tracy and Harvey Feierstein as Edna. Marvellous actor, wonderful, distinctive voice. In 2003, Hairspray won eight Tony Awards, including Best Musical, out of some 13 nominations. It ran for 2,642 performances and closed in January of uh, 2009. The West End production opened at the Shaftesbury Theatre in October of 2007 for previews before its official opening on October the 30th. Michael Ball played Edna with Mel Smith as Wilbur Turnblad and newcomer Leanne Jones as Tracy. The London production was nominated for a record-setting 11 Laurence Olivier Awards, winning four of those, including Best New Musical. I'll just finish with the critics' response to all of this, because according to Variety, Hairspray received 13 favourable and only four mixed reviews, none bad. Charles Isherwood, in his Variety review, wrote, This sweet, infinitely spirited, bubblegum-flavoured confection won't be lacking for buyers any time soon. Arriving in an aerosol fog of advance hype, it more than lives up to its promise. So they loved it. And it's been a staple ever since all around the world. And, you know, you're going to see it somewhere fairly soon. In fact, Hamilton Musical Theatre have got it slated for next year. It's going to be a popular one, that's for sure. 
Hairspray opened with a $12 million advance uh, back in 2002 on Broadway. That initial investment, by the way, was recouped by May the following year, which was about nine months after its Broadway opening. So in nine months, it's got got its money back and just started making profit. And after the Tony Awards show, it was expected to do five times the the business it normally did on a Monday. For 2002-03, it averaged 99% capacity. And for 2007, just two years before it closed, it averaged... 86%. 86%. So it's done great business. I didn't realize it was so recent. I thought for some reason I had it in my head that it was way older, but maybe it's just the movie that did that. Well, if you go back to the John Waters movie, um, mm. where arguably, you know, Divine playing Edna was the definitive character, you know, that's 1988. It is an old story. Yeah, yeah, it is an old story. I love that it, well, it hasn't really lost any popularity since then. You know, it's the movie came out. Oh, how long did it? What what year did you say the movie came out? Twenty oh seven. Yeah. So and it's since then it's been doing community theatre rounds, and like you said, HMT is doing it next year. So it hasn't ever really lost popularity. No, and it's still addressing issues which I think um, you know touchstones in America now. I mean, race is always going to be an issue in America, right? Yeah, that's right. And integration. I love Hairspray. Uh, there is such a rich history like in its development. It's a show that encourages diversity and acceptance, which I'm obviously all about. Um, it's about female empowerment. It's got gender bending and mad choreography. So <laughs> what is not to love? Exactly. What is not to love? Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about writing the stage musical in a moment. Hey, Trace, my mom's pitching a platter party at our record shop off North Avenue. Want to come uh, check it out? May I also come check it out? Oh, you surely may. I've never been to North Avenue. Uh, would it be safe up there for, you know, us? Don't worry, Cracker Boy, it's cool. Imagine being invited places by colored people. It feels so hip. <laughs> well, I'm glad you feel that way, friends, because uh, not everybody does. I can't see my people look at me and only see the color of my face. Yes, they do. And then there's those who try to help God knows but have to always put me in my place. Now, I won't ask you to be colorblind because if you pick the fruit, then girl, you should have fire. I'm blacker than berry, sweeter than juice. I can say it ain't so. Darling, what's the use? The darker the chocolate, the richer the taste. And that's where it's at. Now, run and tell that.
you're backstage with Mel and Mike, either live on 89.0 Free FM or later from your favourite podcast streaming app, we are listening to Hairspray and we want to know and talk about writing musicals for the stage. Now, a woman called Nell Benjamin was an English major with a penchant for poetry, particularly rhyming sonnets, and she turned that inclination into writing lyrics when she penned her first musical for Harvard's Hasty Pudding Theatricals, Benji Pasek and Justin Paul were sophomores in college with bit parts in the school musical, so they used their spare rehearsal time to write a coming-of-age song cycle. Adam Guan was a high schooler absorbed in piano lessons who went to a musical with his class, which is the first time he realised that people actually write musicals. Kevin Delarguia was an unemployed actor writing plays on the side, and his show at the New York International Fringe Festival turned into an offer to write the book for an off-Broadway show. Stu was a rock musician who told what he thought was a white lie about having an idea for a musical, not expecting to get taken up on it. And Kirsten Childs was a fussy dancer who didn't see people like her represented enough on stage, so she took up her pen. These are the origin stories of seven musical theatre writers, and there are plenty more who probably chose not to venture down this uncertain path, and in large part because where do you even go to study writing for musical theatre? Lots of theatre writers begin their careers as actors, because a performance degree is often the only one offered in most musical theatre programmes. Kirsten Childs began her career, uh, as you mentioned, as a modern dancer. She studied dance at the University of California, Berkeley. She landed accidentally in musical theatre when she went to an open dance call for the original tour of Chicago. Working with Bob Fosse turned into a crash course in musical theatre. And once on the path of writing, musical theatre makers apparently often find their acting training very helpful. Surprise, surprise. Mm-hmm. Pasek and Paul, who studied musical theatre at the University of Michigan, used spare time between playing bit parts in the school's production of City of Angels to write Edges, a song cycle that became something of a sensation thanks to YouTube videos of a performance at the school. And since then, of course, they've been responsible for Dogfight, Dear Evan Hansen, La La Land, The Greatest Showman, and they're going to keep going. The list goes on, I'm sure. Adam Guan also studied acting at New York University's Tisch School of the Arts. His teacher, David Bucknam, who was also a composer, he died during Guan's freshman year, which only further spurred him on, apparently. While he continued in the school's acting track, Adam looked for every opportunity to learn the writing craft. NYU doesn't allow students to audition for productions in their first year, so Adam Guan began music directing student shows and composing incidental music for plays. Now, you might see a bit of a trend developing here, and this is where it becomes quite apparent that really, if you want to write musical theatre, you kind of just have to make it happen yourself, make it work for yourself, you know? Mm. Take the initiative. Pasek and Paul also found ways to alter their training to suit their strengths, and some teachers even created independent study opportunities for the emerging writers to learn. For example, Justin Paul speaks about his teacher, Jerry Dupuy, taking old classic musical theatre songs and sitting him down at the piano to say, let's create some new arrangements of this song. Mm, uh, likewise, Benji Pasek also says that another teacher designed a class where he would give Pasek songs written by classic composers that were not well known and Pasek would write lyrics to the songs. Which is great teaching, right? I feel like yes. Yeah. (laughs) Pasek and Paul also looked outside the school for opportunities and training and mentorship. They contacted composer-lyricist Jeff Marks via Friendster and ended up shadowing him over the summer while he mounted Avenue Q in Las Vegas. They also took chances and sought advice from writers who seemed out of reach at the time. They met Stephen Schwartz at an event when they were still in college and gave him the CD of Edges. And after months and months of figuring they're never going to hear from him, he sent them a multiple-page email addressing every single song. The guy took the time to give them feedback. How cool is that? That is really freaking cool. Adam Guan found his champion and mentor in Lynn Ahrens when he signed up for a workshop that offered writers the opportunity to play their songs for different working professionals. At the end of the workshop, Lynn Ahrens grabbed his arm and said, give me your number. (laughs) For lyricist and playwright and book writer Nell Benjamin, Harold Prince was that person for her. She and her husband, the composer Larry O'Keefe, who wrote Bat Boy and Legally Blonde, were asked to write a musical as part of an evening of three short musicals that Prince was involved in. It was Benjamin's first musical job outside of college. 
And though Prince was directing only one of the shows, he gave feedback on every single one of them. And nothing will give you a quicker musical theatre education than presenting your first draft mm. to Hal Prince. Gosh, be so nerve-wracking, so wouldn't it? <laughs> I don't know how they do it. And there is the BMI Lemon Engel Musical Theatre Workshop in New York. So Lynn Ahrens attended this program, as did many, many other writers, like Kristen Anderson Lopez and Robert Lopez of The Book of Mormon and Frozen, to Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. Adam Guan was accepted into the program, but attended the Dramatists Guild, which he was also accepted into. Justin Pasek participated in the first year of the three-year workshop. And during that initial year, lyricists and composers pair up with different collaborators for song assignments, from writing a song for Blanche Dubois to putting music to the dramatic suicide and death of a salesman. In their second year at BMI, students team up with one collaborator from the program to work on a full musical and then present four songs from the show at the end of the year, at which point the BMI committee decides whether to invite them to continue into the third year and or beyond. And it's so it's important to establish at this point that it's not a competition. Feasibly, every single student could move through to yep. the third year. At the advanced level, students present new work to the room for feedback on a weekly basis. More than 300 people apply to the program every year and about 35 are accepted. Nell Benjamin met her husband, Lawrence O'Keefe, at Harvard. They've both worked together on shows like Legally Blonde and Apart. O'Keefe co-wrote Heather's The Musical and Benjamin penned the lyrics for Mean Girls The Musical. That's a nice twist of irony. I like it is, that. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Nell Benjamin says that she learned the most about good musical theatre writing from her husband, who she believes to be a genius. Absorbing other artists' work is, is formative for her as well. You need to be able to listen to what other people are creating. Yeah, you do. You need to listen to Sondheim and Lynn manuel and John Larson and experience the dread that you'll never be as good as them and then get over <laughs> it and carry on. That's what gives you the drive to do and be better. You immerse yourself in the greats. Actors do that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think probably most pivotally, listen to audiences. Oh, yeah. Uh, they give you the best feedback possible and take any chance you can to put your work in front of people. The only way to really get better and to improve is to just keep writing and keep learning from your mistakes. And to put a full stop on this conversation about creating theatre and collaborating, here is Lynn Miranda with his tasty creative process. My job's to fall in love for a living. It's falling in love with an idea and, and falling in love with it so much that you have to see it through to completion. It's not enough to just go, hey, it would be cool if we did this or if it would be cool if there was a song about this. It's about that song or that impulse or that creative idea that sort of doesn't leave you alone. It bugs you in the shower, it bugs you when you're walking your dog, um, bugs you when you're changing your son's diapers, and it doesn't leave you alone until you finish it. Those are the ideas that I try to really sort of chase and, and write down when they feel true. And it's, it's that simple and it's that complicated. We had a student-written theater group at my high school uh, where students would write plays, uh, they'd submit them, and then another bunch of students would pick five plays and direct them. So I had an opportunity to be produced at 12 years old. <laughs> would I be writing hip-hop songs and or trying to be an artist? I might be doing a totally different thing if that club hadn't existed. I sort of look for the music at the piano that I feel best serves this mood or this moment. I'll record just enough of it to get a loop, and then I'll go off and talk to myself, and I'll just sort of figure out the lyrics as I'm walking the dog or I'm washing dishes or, you know, I actually need to be doing something else to, to be able to work on the lyrics in a real way. But I just talk to myself until it feels true. And when it feels true, I write it down. When I'm composing, I'm acting. I'm, you know, when I'm writing how far I'll go, I'm Moana. I'm Moana until I figure out what Moana needs to say. And when, when we say it the right way, I write it down. Um, and, and when I'm acting, when I'm playing a, a role, I'm, I'm looking for the truth of those words. You always want to meet your heroes, right? But you, you rarely get to meet them uh, in a situation where they're seeing your work. Uh, and I got that every night. They, they've just been hit with two hours and 45 minutes of Hamilton, uh, and then I meet them. Um, and that's, that's an incredible feeling, because we get past all the initial, like, 
oh my God, I'm talking to Bruce Springsteen, or oh my God, I'm talking to Eminem, or oh my God, I'm talking to, you know, uh, John Kander. Uh, it's it's thrilling um, when your heroes see your work because you know it's it's a conversation between what they did that you loved and and the thing you made. While I want to get as much done in the time I have on this earth as anybody else, I also am very zen about the fact that, you know, there are going to be things I write that people love, there are going to be things I write that people hate. With Hamilton, I knew I was doing my best work. I knew I was do, put, doing everything I knew about musical theater and everything I knew about hip-hop and throwing them in the same pot uh, and seeing what kind of paella I'd make. I didn't know whether it would be a success or not, but I was like, this is going to be tasty. Um, I don't know if anyone else is going to like it, but I like it. Um, so you kind of have to satisfy that first, and then, you know, the, the rest is, is out of your hands. With those delicious morsels of wisdom, I'm a little bit inspired to go write something, if I'm being honest. Uh, and I'm a lot inspired to thank you from the bottom of our hearts, because it is that time again. Indeed. Thank you, Free FM, for hosting us. Thanks to Creative Waikato for sponsoring us. We do appreciate it. Backstage is available on accessmedia.nz, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Mel will be sharing all of our new content this week on our Instagram story and on Facebook. I sure will. It wouldn't be an episode featuring Hairspray if we didn't see you out with Without Love from the original Broadway cast of Hairspray. Stay safe out there and stay classy, theatre nerds. Yes. See you. Penny, what happened? My mother's punishing me for going to jail without permission. Well, I've come to rescue the fair maiden from her tower. Oh, seaweed. Tracy, you look beautiful behind bars. It must be the low-watt institutional lighting. Tracy, they can keep us from kissing, but they can't stop us from singing. Once I was a selfish fool who never understood. I never looked inside myself, though on the outside I looked good. Then we met and you made me the man I am today. Tracy, I'm in love with you, no matter what you wake. Cause without love, life is like the seasons with no summer. Without love, life is rock and roll without a drummer. Tracy, I'll be yours forever, cause I never wanna be. Set me free, Tracy. No, no, no. Once I was a simple girl, then stardom came to me. But I was still a nothing, though a thousand fans may disagree. Fame was just a prison, signing autographs aboard. I didn't have a clue till you came banging on my door. That without love, the life is like my dad's without his promo.
Just get the only thing better than hairspray. 
like you could use a stiff one. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.